You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm pretty tired. How are you doing? I, I can't complain. I'm actually not so tired as I usually am. Um, so, but let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Josh Summers. Uh, well known to our regular viewers and listeners, we've spoken before. Uh, you're like a yoga guy, yin yoga guru guy. You're, you're you're seated like we should tell our our, our podcast listeners. You are seated as a guru would be seated on the yeah, floor. This is well, given the, the back and forth we had as set up for this this installment of the Dharma of Bob, I thought I might need to occupy a little bit more guru territory today. So, job somebody's got to do, and then maybe you're going to explain to me how to do it, as I understand, if we have time for that. So, you're going to today. Uh, you're going to. We've had a series of conversations, loosely uh, grouped under the rubric, the Dharma of Bob, uh, uh, a term you came up with. I always point out. Um, today, uh, maybe the Dharma of Bob part won't pop up immediately. I, I would like to do a, a couple things. I want you to be, if we have time, I want you to be life coach in a couple of sentences. First of all, help me uh, with some meditation problems I'm having right now. My practice isn't in great shape. Uh, and then if we have time at the end, you can be life coach in this deeper sense that you alluded to in our pre-taping uh, patter where you said you had... Uh, you have big plans for me, which is good. I like. I, I want. I want to hear about the big plans for me. Um, and that's and, why I'm tired because the big plans kept me up all night. You've been thinking it. Well, good. I, it's funny. Yeah. One thing we have in common is we stay up at night worrying about my future. And but, you're well, the no, only no, no, other it's, person it's, I know who does that besides me. It's not. Well, it's not just the, your future. It's the future you're you're trying to avoid. Oh, the apocalypse. Yes. So, the apocalypse so the, aversion. Yeah. Right. And so the listeners need to realize that the that the Dharma of Bob is situated in context with that 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 initiative. We are all about it. avoiding yeah. the apocalypse, and uh, this is a, a thing I I focus on in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter. But there's there's speaking of which, in between these two uh, life coach segments. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about uh, the connection between mindfulness and courage. I, I wrote about the courage part in the newsletter recently. And, I, and if I had had time, I was going to say, uh, you know, um, it may sound surprising for me to jump from mindfulness, which sounds kind of soft and mushy, to recommending courage, which I was saying uh, more of us need to show on social media, including me, Um but if I had more time, I would have said there's actually a connection. In theory, at least, you should be able to cultivate courage via mindfulness. So I want to talk about that in the middle if we have time. And that would be, that would be the point that we flip the life coaching role. Okay, so that's the hinge? Because, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's the pivot part of the point? Hinge. Yeah. Okay, from pedestrian life coaching to profound uh, and visionary life coaching. We've got, okay. the, we've got, the, we've got it set. Let's do okay. it. Okay. So, so talk to me. Like, so, so before we go into the meditation, just so that the, yeah. I mean, the audience doesn't take what I say is too seriously here in, in terms of the guru thing. Um, <laughs> it's I, the way I'm going to talk to you about this is, is is what I do with a lot of my peers and friends. We just we share and talk about our practice and we sort of try to triage what we think is going on for each other. And, and it's sort of a peer to peer mentorship. I mean, you have done 
I guess a little meditation teaching kind of in an ancillary way. You're mainly a yoga teacher. But- Actually, I've, I've let you I've let you slide with that one, and I haven't interjected. I do teach meditation regularly. I have actually a lot of meditation teaching background. I've taught okay. at Boston University in the sports psychology program for a while, and I'm also a, I was an acupuncturist uh, be, before the middle of COVID, which shut that down. So I have a, three different hats. Two of them, actually, three of them are all quite related. Um, okay. So I have well, good that in the mix. I, I, I maybe at some point we get to the sports psychology part. I'm fascinated by. Well, that's going to come into, that's going to, that's my, that's going to come up when we triage your practice right now. Yeah. You're going to help my golf game? Well, no, I'm going to help your game with the way, see, the sports psychology piece was a, a, a professor of sports psychology invited me into her positive psychology class to talk about mindfulness one time. And then she hatched this idea of me giving an intervention slash training to the Boston women's soccer team, Boston University women's soccer team. Ah. So it was one of these things that she did a pre-post analysis on their psychological uh, experience of stress, among other things. And I was the, the quote-unquote teacher, um, and I learned some things in that that I might be able to. And apply. you transform them into a world-class team. Just say yes. It's, yes. it's trust me. I have. I'm not good <clears throat> at marketing myself, but I but I have basic marketing instincts. Just say yes. I, well, it was mostly my the colleagues' work, but she 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 did it. But she did find that there was much better um, a capacity that the players had to uh, navigate their stress, get back into the zone, um, and and the, the and it was really the first Division One uh, study on on mindfulness. And really, sport. I didn't know this about your your history. There's you're a lot too, of things. You're too modest. That, There's a lot of things I don't know. Probably some of them you don't want me to know, and then you, you can keep those. <laughs> No, yeah, the dark, those can but, come out too. Uh, so, well, that's good. I mean, we should do a whole conversation on sports psychology because I'm a head case on any athletic in any athletic endeavor. I am a head case. You can name the sport, I will be a head case. But we'll get back to that. Let's talk about my meditation problem. I blame it on the pandemic. So here's my the pattern of my meditation practice had been. I'll go to a meditation retreat. It will kind of recharge my practice. And that will last for more than a year. And then I'll feel I need another retreat. So I was kind of going to retreats about every two years. Like one week silent meditation retreat. Sometimes 10 days. The longest ever was two weeks. Um, and uh, and then I, I was due for one this summer. But then the pandemic, as you know, you're, you're, you've heard about this pandemic thing probably. Uh, it hit. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I looked at uh, IMS's uh, site today, and there's still not. I still don't see any signs of, of, of live physical retreats on the calendar. So I don't know how long it'll be. But um, the uh, so as a result, I feel like my my practice. I still do it, and I think I deserve some credit for that. I get up in the morning. I do my for reasons I, I probably shouldn't get into, I've been setting the timer for 34 minutes. Odd, odd number, I know. And you don't want to explain the, you the don't odd want number. To, you don't want to, well, I'll tell you, honestly, when, you're, when your practice isn't going that great, so it's not like you're, 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 you're exactly looking forward to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like lumpy oatmeal. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, can I do 40 minutes of this? 
Well, I should do more than 30. Well, 34 seems like closer to 30 than it is to 40. It seems like I can do that. So that's how I got into 34. Am I, am I starting to sound like a problematic case? It's starting to come into focus. Yeah. Carry it. Uh, and, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like at one end of the spectrum, like when you're, you know, right after you've done a retreat or in day five of a retreat or something, you just sit down, you focus on the breath, you know, certainly within like a minute or so, you can easily focus and immerse yourself on and immerse yourself in kind of 10 consecutive breaths, no sweat, you keep going. Um, and then, you know, six months after the retreat may take you five minutes, what was taking you a minute. And now more than two years after my last retreat, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like just a linear decline. Okay. You, you, you know, you have your ups and downs, but at the moment it just seems like I'm lucky to be able to focus on 10 consecutive breaths by the end of the session. It's like. And and I think part of it is I've kind of given up. I, I just, I sit down and it's like, I, in a way, maybe what I've done is get into a version of Zen. You know, you hear that some Zen instructions are like, just sit down and do nothing. You know, don't, they don't say focus on your breath, blah, blah, blah. Just, just be, just sit. Like, well, okay, I sit, my mind wanders, you know, and then it's like, fine, this is okay. Okay, I'll do that. Um, and, and then it does you know, it's like slowly you get a little of that out of your system and you get a little calmer and better able to focus. But it, it may be as simple as just like telling myself, no, sit down and focus on your damn breath right away. But I don't think it's going to be that simple. No, well, that wouldn't be my, my recommendation. No, of course so. not, because you're one of these meditation people who's like, be gentle with yourself. No, <laughs> gentle. Well, okay, that that will feed into the courage piece later. Okay, because because that that that, you're, that tiptoes into the, the the dynamic of compassion versus what the Tibetans compare to compare to idiot compassion. Idiot so compassion. Idiot compassion is just indulging the whinging, desiring. Uh, Whatever being too uh, easy on yourself is right. Just you know, if you're sleepy in meditation, go back to sleep. If you're right. not feeling good, you know, just move right. and, and maybe get up and have a coffee or something. You don't. Right. It's not 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 the right time to do it. Come back when it feels right, right for right. you. That that's that's like you're that's indulgent. That. Yeah, that's that. Yes, I, I'm against that. So yeah, real compassion is is investigating and and opening to the the pain of experience and 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 wishing that to be mitigated to to to, to relieve the suffering. Well, but you shouldn't really quite <clears throat> be sitting there wishing for it to be mitigated and go away, right? Sure, that can be part of the, the intention. Well, it can in be this, part in of the, the intention in the going in, but but when you're sitting there, you shouldn't be trying to push it away. Not so push it away, right. right. Like, not push it away, but to open to it. And then in, like that is what awakens the compassion. It's, the, it's in, in the encounter with the difficulty that, that, that you, you, you brush up against or, or encounter the pain which then to animates the, the aspiration of the heart to, to have it be relieved. But in a, in a deep level, which is the, the letting go. I mean, the, and, you, and you, I know you know this, but the letting go of the, the desire that it goes away is the, is the, is the pivot yeah. within that process. So, so let's back up because it started out, you're talking about 
you go on these retreats once every couple of years and they recharge your practice and you come off and then, you know, you're able to sit down and lock in on the breath and, and you, and you get in that groove pretty quickly and you're able to focus. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an incredibly common experience. I know that experience myself well. And what I'm, I hear, and I'm checking with you if you see if you recognize this, but there's a subtle clinging to that focus that you develop on retreat. Probably. And, and that's, and then, I mean, I know many of my friends are like this, that they, they feel like they, they just sort of need to get back on retreat to reamp and keep that level of samadhi or concentration going. And then if they don't, if they lose that, that, if that gets degraded, then somehow the practice is in the ditch, which is essentially, I think, what you're describing. Probably. Okay. So... I would, you know, one thing you could do is is just reach, step back and let's discuss what the frame of the practice is about. Okay. So, in your words, what how would you describe what you're trying to, quote unquote, what kind of process or uh, development are you engaged with in the meditation? Do you mean what are the overarching goals or? Yes, that's one way of putting it. Well, like, I mean, what's the what's the outcome that gets that gets to? I mean, meditation in Buddhism is referred to as bhavana. It's a development. It's a cultivation. Mm-hmm. So, what is getting cultivated? What well, I mean, I, I, I mean, broadly speaking, you could say mindfulness. That's the tradition of meditation. It's it's not the only Buddhist tradition of meditation, but it's the kind uh, that I'm that I'm kind of in. And also, I mean, it's like. Uh, so let me push that further. That what yeah. is the function of mindfulness? To what end? Is, what, what well, is, what, I, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, people have uh, asked me. There's some very practical things. It's like, the, the, like, what's the virtue of mindfulness practice? And sometimes I just say, you do fewer regret, regrettable things. Right. I mean, you, right. you're you're and and that's that's because you're in a more balanced, equanimous state less likely to fly off the handle, less likely to send the ill-advised email, uh, you know, the ill-advised retweet. So there's wisdom. There's wisdom. I think in a previous conversation, you you succinctly define wisdom as, at one level, just avoiding bad outcomes, right? Yeah, don't, as uh, Obama described his, his foreign policy aspiration is don't do stupid shit. It's better than doing it. And it's a start. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's it's not all the way to enlightenment um, or nirvana, which you know are kind of the same, or arrive at the same time. But uh, but it's uh, uh, yeah. Th- I mean that that's uh, you know, it's a uh, certainly yeah. Wisdom is it, it, it's it's being in the kind of emotional and mental state that facilitates wise action. Um, and, uh, I, I would say that's, you know, and I mean, to, to, to get back, you know, to, to, to stay on a pragmatic note and, and efficient action. Like, I mean, wasting time is, is also not the wisest thing you can do in the world. Um, you hear, you hear the phrase skillful action, skillful, skillful means. Yeah, skillful means is a common one in in Buddhism, and and it refers to you know the the, the sense is kind of you know you're kind of sizing the situation up and doing the wise thing given what you want to achieve, and 
And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it allows you to live a skillful life. There's a lot of ways you could describe mindfulness. Um, but I think at a practical level, it uh, facilitates um, uh, effective and wise intervention in the world. Um, and, and as a byproduct, uh, you know, it, it, it you would expect it to increase your well-being and, and it and it tends to, I think, increase your appreciation of, you know, Okay. Okay. But let's, let's come back to let's come back to the, the, the your experience and the practice around your breath because right. it, it sounds like there's a dichotomy or a binary between good practice and bad practice in your mind and and good practice based on what you're saying would be predicated on being able to sustain your attention on your breath for more than ten cycles. Uh, it, or, it, it has tended to involve that. In, in my experience, when my practice is what I, you know, when I would call my practice like going well, uh, I would have that capacity. Yes. Right. So that's I mean, that happens when when the conditions supported on retreat and this and I think some retreat experience gives gives everyone that does it a really good felt experience of that development. Mm -hmm. But in daily life to to kind of hang on, try to cling to the, the, the momentum that we, we have on retreat is a, is a recipe for, for dissatisfaction. Well, let me add. So, 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 so I, let me just come back to the breath though. It's if you're, if the practice is about developing the capacity for skillful action, skillful perception, wisdom, compassion, those things, then, then, then what I would want to talk with you about is how does the dynamic of the meditation facilitate that development? And, and to quote the Thai teacher of the last century, Ajahn Shah, like, who said, a hen can stay on her nest immobile for hours and hours and hours uh, watching over her eggs. That doesn't make her wise. So, you know, and the analogy is just keeping your attention stuck on the breath mm -hmm. is not necessarily going to produce a deeper level of understanding, as, as I know, I've heard you talk about the understanding the structure of experience or the structure of the self or the structure of uh, emotion and feeling and all that. So I would want to look into the dynamic between when you're on the breath, when you get off the breath, what you're aware of and what you, how you treat waking up to not being present on the breath, because it's in that territory, I think that the, that the real important, insights and, and, and broader perspectives start to come vis-a-vis -vis the reference point of the breath, not keeping the attention on the but breath. There's but two, there's two different issues here. One is like, okay, let's say you're in the groove and you're focusing on your breath well. You realize that's not the end, like, goal. That's not, you, you know, that's not the point. I mean, unless you're really, you know, pursuing samadhi and doing kind of concentration meditation, and, and that's a different thing. But if you're doing mindfulness meditation, the point of the focus is to kind of, some would say, stabilize the mind, whatever. But that's, that's as a way station to something else. Okay, that's one point, fine. And, and if Ajahn Chah said that in this context, fine. But that's different from saying, I'm not even getting to the point where I'm focusing on the breath, right? These are two, you know, can something useful happen without going through that way station? And let me add, um, something does. I mean, one, one thing that uh, keeps me going is that it's not a complete waste of time. I mean, I, I, I sometimes say that, like, look, at a minimum, 
it's better than average mind wandering, by which I mean, you know, if you sit there long enough, just with your eyes closed, and and there's mind wandering without outside intervention. In other words, it's not like your mind wanders and then you see a tweet. Your mind wanders and you see CNN. Your mind want you know. No, it's it's like it's like sealed off mind wandering. And in my experience, uh, as the time passes, you know, five ten minutes or so, you you are you are calming down a little. You are um, something is changing and and. Like, for example, good ideas are more likely to pop into my mind. I may not be thinking about them, but it'll just be an idea that's relevant to my work. And, and, uh, and also the, you know, then the time will often arrive where, uh, oh, you can focus on your breaths if you want now. And that's, that's not necessarily critical as something to do at that stage, but it's a sign that that you have you know you have kind of uh uh your, your mind is is calming down a little stabilizing so uh i well right and i and i and i've so in my own practice life and and this is where i think not so much in the, where we we started practice more or less at the same around the same time give or take a few years but i think uh, I, I don't, I probably worked with more teachers offering different approaches. Yeah. And so my approach in general is, is, is more is analogous to the way I think a jazz musician develops themselves, which is you, you, you survey a whole bunch of influences. You, you really steep yourself in the ones you resonate with and then you integrate them and then you ultimately figure out how to make them come alive in your own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've done a practice where for a long time it was just to be receptive to whatever the hell happened to the mind wandering or not to let that go on. And I found that, and this is actually what I recommend for beginners because there's too much too, too, it's too easy for a, a person in meditation to, to really create a divided mind that there's some experience to have some experiences not to have. And I think with, if you have the frame around the, the practice the way that I read the Buddha's instructions, the practice is to be aware and interested and explorative of all experiences. And, and, and that includes the mind wandering. And the question then is how do you get to know what's going on in the mind wandering? That's through reflection. And I don't, I don't have any problem. I think there's, there's been a right. emphasis I mean, in, in, in contemporary mindfulness. Hang on. There's been a contemporary emphasis in mindfulness to, to get, into the present moment, like locked into the present moment. That's the only um, sort of lane of experience that will produce any kind of wisdom or value. And that, that to me is just too reductive. Right. But when you're locked, when you're doing the mind wandering, you're not observing it. You're not observing it, but that, but that doesn't mean that something like uninteresting isn't occurring within it or that there's something. No, like I said, it, it's better than average mind wandering, but, but it's, uh, and, and I accept that and that's fine, but th- there's, uh, it's... Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So you're familiar with the list of the hindrances, right? The difficult well, mindset. There are various lists, but, uh, some shorter than others, but yeah. The, 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 the five big ones, the Navarna's, um, desiring mind, ill will, the ill mind of ill will, anxiety, restless worry mind, the, the, the low energy mind and the doubting mind. And, I mean, 
there's a kind of presumption that in, in mindfulness practice, you're meant to sort of catch and release these whenever they arise. You know, if you catch your mind desire, you recognize it, you, you put, kind of become mm-hmm. aware of it and then let it go and come back mm-hmm. to your breath. But the wandering mind itself is going to be some permutation or combination of the spectrum of those energies. And to understand them, you have to let them go on a bit and then, you know, reflect back either during the meditation or even after the meditation, get, get a sense of what your mind is preoccupied with. And that's, and that's, I think, pretty accurately described in, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, when the Buddha refers to looking at the hindrances when they're present, when they're absent, getting a sense of how are they released when they arise, what kinds of fuel, how do they come to be in your mind. That requires a comprehensive understanding that, that if you were limited to strictly present moment attention, would not be possible. Well, so no, but I mean, an, another way of putting the problem is that, like, observing the things you're saying should be observed, that you just listed, is easier in some states of mind than others. And I'm saying that when my practice isn't going well, it's taking me a long time to get into the kind of state of mind where you can observe these kinds of things. So by your own definition, things aren't going great. <laughs> well, no. So let's let's come back to something more fundamental. Just basically we're describing being present and drifting off. Right? There's moments when you're awake and you're aware that you're doing what you're doing. And then there's moments where you've drifted off. Yeah. Right? So the question is when you wake up, when you wake up to having drifted, really at that moment, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but to me, in my view, that is the pivot point and the most important point of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Not, not being on the breath, not being focused on the body, but what do you, how do you navigate that moment of wake, being when wake, you go, wake You mean up? when you go, oh, my mind is wandering. Right. What do you do at that point? Okay. What do you yeah. recommend? Well, there's a variety of things you could recommend, but one is uh, a to appreciate it. The, in the, the sense pre- of be grateful, or in the sense of of be aware. Uh, be great. I mean, I mean, celebrate it in a sense of reward yourself, like in in a kind of way that the oh, mind yeah. is awake again. And that's, I'm borrowing this from a few other teachers that I've I've uh, expo- been exposed to, who really encourage you know to. Smile gently. I mean, this is just one. I'm not recommending you do this necessarily, but you could smile in the, in the mind because that has a cascade of, of biochemical effects through the body, and it is conducive to tranquility. When you're receptive to that experience, you're, you're basically praising your your mind for doing what you in, are uh, encouraging it to do, which is to be mm-hmm. present. So, if you, every time, like if you wake up and you and you kind of reflexively slap your wrists, do the old Homer Simpson don't. And, and then hustle back to the breath. It's like training a dog. If you negatively reinforce the dog when they do the behavior you want. Right. They're not, they're not as likely to do Right. No, that's, that's, I mean, I remember at my very first retreat, uh, the teacher, uh, I think I wrote about this in my book, but the teacher is like, you know, it's the first time during the retreat where you meet in a group for, uh, with a teacher. So for this one, one 45 minutes, the silence is going to be broken after like three days. And it was my first retreat or it was probably, it was probably the second day or first day since I was, I was a beginner. They would have uh, seen me early. And, and I was like, uh, 
so how's it going? And I'm like, uh, well, uh, you know, I just, I just keep, uh, I just keep like, you know, uh, realizing that I'm not focusing on my breath. It's like, that's a great, you know, you're realizing that you're not focusing on your breath. And I'm like, yeah, but it happens like all the time. She's, she's like, that's even better. Like, that's what you're saying. I mean, the, exactly. The, the, no, ex- that, that in itself is an insight into anatta. Into not self. self. Yeah. How, you, uh, elaborate you're, you're, on that. Elaborate well, on how that's an insight into not self. Your conscious attention, your, your, your conscious sense of self tries to do its simple task. And you get disabused of your ability to do that task again and again and again. You're not in charge of your mind the way you oh. think you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. So Although ironically, you know, becoming more aware of that kind of in a certain sense put you put you in charge, but we'll leave that all that aside. The um Okay, so so I, I, I had I had a session with my online group on Monday and we were talking about the theme of doubt. And um there was a kind of a connection that was made to an article in the New York Times by Adam Grant, I believe, on this kind of malaise that is sort of pervading the, the, the collective right now that he referred to with the word languishing. Oh, where, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, I saw that piece. Thrive, in between thriving and, and full-scale depression, there's this middling state, uh, kind of energy of just not thriving, kind of the, the, the meh mind, like things just aren't spicy or attractive. You don't feel engaged and uh, enthusiastic as much as you would. Um, but his antidote was flow. And this gets back to the to the, to the, uh, the sports psychology thing. Um, this is an idea most famously associated with uh, Mihai is Ch- one pr- pronunciation of that formidable last name. Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah. So yes, and if um, like so, so what I brought into the to the group on Monday was how can you practice in a way that supports the experience of flow. And then, I mean, you're, 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 I think in some level you're, yeah. you're, you're feeling like there is no flow that you're kind of like grinding things out and it's a little bit routinized and dull and not, not very exciting. So what I offered to them and, and the feedback from many was pretty good. A few had difficulties with it. So again, one size fits all practice. I don't believe in uh, every instruction is going to work for everybody, but was at the moment of waking up to pause and just reflect on what you had been drifting into, if you can. And to see that within the drifting, there's some manifestation of one of the hindrances. Like there's a desire for something, you're planning, you're remembering, you're hashing out of something you're going to write about. And then the follow-up question I had was, once you can are able to sort of recognize what's going on, to inquire into what, and, and, and I can already sense you might, audience members will roll their eyes when they hear me say this, but to sense the energy, what the energy is in trying to achieve within that state. Like what is, what is, what is it? What's the kind of the root of it in terms of what is it seeking? What, what is that energy? What, seeking? Is, what is what seeking? The energy, the energy. That, that you were like the state of mind that you were in that, that departed you from the perch of the breath or the, the feeling of your hands, or your body, when your mind departs from that experience, there's an unconscious kind of train of 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 uh, that's seeking something. Yeah, there always is. That's the whole problem. 
No, but, th- but th- this is the problem to understand. Mm-hmm. So, so as soon as but I mean, as you're, soon always, as you, you're always you, you know the, the, the problem of life at some level, you know, according to Buddhism, is that you're always grasping for something. Right. So you're in a sense you're seeing the grasping mind, you know, just sure. after it's left the gate. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's an important piece, and then. Um, what I was trying to encourage was once you can, if you're able to sense what it's grasping or seeking in a sense to see the limitations of that strategy. Uh, Of the thing that you've, of the grasping. Yeah. Or to just, or even just to feel, feel into it and, and let it be heard because, and this is what I was trying to get at with the, the idea of compassion is that when you see over and over again, how the conditioned habit patterns, this like what in Buddhism they refer to as sankharas, or in yogic terminology, samskara, when you see those habit patterns, and they, they, they have to, they break into consciousness from the unconscious when your mind wanders. Mm-hmm. And then something wakes you up, and then you're able to get some bearing on it. And at that point, you can, what I was recommending is to A, listen to it, get a sense of what it's seeking, and then just let it be heard. So there's no fighting with it. You're listening to the experience. Okay. And then, and then you can return to your per- So then it resets. And the reason I'm saying this is because, and this, this will, I'm going to try to build this metaphor into other territory in our conversation, is I've been, during the pandemic, one of the things I've been uh, doing just as a hobby is trying to get back my, my, um, my music hobby back in, in gear. And I used to try to, I tried to be a musician at one point, but the, the main problem I had in, in, in the world of music was that I had a terrible musical ear. I had lots of other skills. That's, I could read music. That's, I could that's a hindrance of, an, of another kind, yes. Right. Um, but there are software and apps now that train the ear. Hmm. And what's kind of um, confidence-inspiring about working with these apps is that you're, you can see yourself progress. That there's actually they 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 like the app I'm using will play a chord progression, a harmonic progression. At the end of it, they'll play a note, and you have to guess. That's the question. You have to guess what note it is in relationship to the context of the other sounds. Right. And I think there's a, an analogy here that in 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 uh, meditation, you're tuning your mind. That's what like you know you, you, in the Eightfold Path, you know the word sama ditti sama. Uh, speech like the, the wise wise speech wise action all those things the word sama i from one teacher i've had describes it as being in tune it's it's the it's it's a it's a quality of being in tune with your speech being in tune with your mind being it's in usually tune trans- tune. translated as as right conventionally but some people have issues with that translation i think you have an implicit bias based on your own name around that but but that it, it, is the, a, it is the predominant right i mean that is the right speech right and, and then there's been a backlash against that but over the over the decades that has been the main translation right i've seen wise and and right used interchangeably but but either one that then that becomes this sort of like rigid form of dogma that you just have to comply to what's right and not. And I think being in tune is, is much more flexible, um, less rigid uh, way of looking at it. But the point is 
you're learning to become in tune with your experience so that you then have that skillfulness to play within the dynamics of your life. The more you're able to recognize the patterns clearly for what they are, whether it's not being with a breath or planning or remembering, and you're, you're better able to, to recognize them off the cushion. Right. And, sure, sure. and so, so there's like, basically I'm trying to, figure out, a, try to help you consider using all the phases of the meditation as valuable to the meditation. There's no experience that, like, as, you know, one of the teacher we shared, Rodney Smith, would say, the only experience to have in the meditation is the one you're having. Any other, any other... <laughs> Rodney act- would say that, and then he would follow that uh, by chastising you for having the wrong experience, but I digress. I mean, I love Rodney. I've had him on the show. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, go ahead. I mean, and this, and by the way, we should say, I mean, all of this, one reason if I sound a little skeptical is like uh, Buddhism has evolved and assumed many forms and there are many traditions and so on. And it's been taught in a billion ways. And I think your version is being refracted through a particular modern sensibility uh, that doesn't like admonition, but you know well that there are Buddhist traditions where the where the where the teacher like hits you on the head for falling asleep, right? And and uh, so it, it is, you know, it's um. Well, well but but okay, so I have to I have to push back on that charge of me being just a woo woo soft. No, I didn't say you're woo. I'm saying you're a particular person in a particular cultural milieu and doing a particular interpretation. Right, but I've also, okay, I've, but I've practiced in systems, I think, that arguably are just as hard as the one you just described. And I've gone the hard route, and it is not, I don't think it's necessary. I just do not think it's necessary. But well, I don't want said, anybody to hit me on the head. I'm not, I'm not ask, asking for that, definitely. But the, the aim, I mean, I'm interested in, in people waking up to sort of their true nature, and, and 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 that is that that requires a certain fire. I'm not I'm not diluting it. I mean the, the, the fire of it so much. So it's like as as I think one author said, it's the gurgling babble of a California hot tub. But the point is, if you are like, if you are interested in samadhi and developing uh, uh, the, the the calm states and ability to see like samadhi in is, a particular concentration a, focus kind of still stillness. That's a, that's another word that I think gets mistranslated. Because that's, I mean, this is sort of the heart of it. You're, you keep talking about focused attention. That's a, that's a very narrow form of... of well, but of, it, it is uh, part of, I mean, as often translated, it is one of two primary, uh, uh, well, as commonly translated, it's, um, you know, one of two primary kinds of meditation it's you know it's it's prominent you're you're so you're you're uh you're taking issue with one common translation of it but it's not like um right right but I've, i mean if you put the term in context with other images of what the buddha referred to as samadhi right. the narrow focus point i don't think put, uh is supported it, okay. he, he, de- he defined it as a, as, a, as a collected gathered unified state Similar to what it's it's like when a a, a a warm spring comes up through a body of cold water, it, it diffuses through the the whole thing, the whole body. So there's it, it a pervasive sense of warmth. Yeah. 
Well, here now, now here I'm going to be more contemporary and less traditional than you, I think, in the sense that I just all of this business about what the Buddha actually meant, uh, you know, it's like the the tradition, you know, there's an array of texts that say an array of things in different traditions, and the idea that we can reconstruct exactly what the Buddha, how the Buddha would have translated each word, and exactly what he meant is. I think, uh, I, we don't have to get into the philosophy of this, but I, I think, um, you know, Stephen Batchelor does this, and I've had conversations with him and kind of accuse him of trying to convince us that uh, the Buddha would, would give the Stephen Batchelor interpretation his, the Buddha seal of approval, right? And uh, I, 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 it's like, also just different things work for different people, Sure. I mean, you're, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you're not here to say that, that like, uh, say, Tibetans who emphasize a lot of visualization have it wrong, right? Absolutely the tradition not. went in that direction in a particular place at a particular time. Some people find it useful. It's very different from what we're talking about. Um, right. So and I don't know. I mean, I just, uh, the, 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 you know, uh, I guess I would say, look, if, if stillness, we all agree stillness is a great thing. Uh, and it's certainly part of the, the aspiration in this tradition. Whether all the people who have translated samadhi in other terms are wrong is, is I don't, I don't see the point of arguing. But. Well, well, but what you mean by stillness conditions how you relate to what goes on in your practice. Well, right, but it doesn't matter whether I say that that's the translation of samadhi. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally on board for stillness. Okay, so, so the means by which we become still is is different depending on if you're trying to focus on your breath and do it, versus if you rest into you know what's going on and start to intuit. Which I, and I, you're going to cut me off if I say this, but I think this is what the Buddha means by wise stillness. It's not a stillness absent of experience. It's a stillness within the field of experience. Because that's what produces, that will give you insight into the nature of things. You can't tune everything out. So the, the stillness is radically inclusive of all conditions. Since, like sensations, feelings, thoughts, all of it arise and pass away within the, the experience of stillness. Or well, the experience yeah. I mean, of, the experience of, of stillness allows you to observe all these things and be aware of them. Yes. Right. No, I've been there. We don't, we're not arguing about that. Right. No, but we're, 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 we're debating on how to proceed when the momentum of a particular kind of concentration degrades off retreat. Well, I'm not even debating that. The only thing I'm debating is whether we should keep pausing to talk about what the Buddha actually meant. I just don't think we should. And, uh, but, um, and what words, how words should be translated and so on. But, but, uh, I'm happy no, to leave I, that as, I can leave that yeah, aside. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but I mean, I take it. So, yeah, I mean, you've given me a couple of things to think about. I mean, one is to try to, uh, when I do notice that my mind is wandering, uh, which at the moment is happening <laughs> all too infrequently in my view, but when I do notice that, kind of celebrate it, which I think makes sense. I'll even try the smile thing. As you know, it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm willing to I'm willing to give the occasional smile a try. Um, the uh, 
And then the other thing, which maybe I'm a little fuzzy on, but it has to do with uh, trying to, as long as you're noticing that your mind was wandering, observe uh, certain things about the nature of the wandering, what was driving the wandering. Uh, and you want me to think of that in terms of the five hindrances. Is that right? I would say use the five hindrances as a as a placeholder for the spectrum of things that propel you into thought and it's not all negative there might be things that you can think about that actually you know whether it's related to your work or something that i think are fine to consider yeah and even i shouldn't i I misspoke there all of it is fine all of it's fine (laughs) okay good uh then we're then 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 uh then we've succeeded it's all fine. It's all good. The the I I mean you know my, it's funny my uh, a different tendency I would have had is to think that um you can always if you observe the mind wandering closely enough uh you can always see it as being driven uh by either uh well you know the, the the greed, hatred, and delusion thing. You can translate the greed as more as more like this this clinging attraction to, grasping, and you can translate the hatred more as aversion. I would say you can always view what's driving your mind wandering as one of those two things in a certain sense. You know, you're you're there's, there's something there's something you're wanting, there's something uh, there's something driving the thought pattern, and it's either. It's either desiring, you know, something, desiring to believe something, desiring to convince yourself of something, or it's, or, or it's, or it's, uh, you know, being averse to some, to some thought or to some way of thinking about things. And even those can be boiled down to tanha. I mean, I mean, you, you can, you can subsume both of those under tanha. You're, you're, you're always either craving the thing or craving to be away from the thing, right? Uh, yes. So, so that that would have been my natural tendency. I'll have to, I'll have to like, I'll have so, to wrap and, my and mind maybe, around this five hindrance uh, scheme of of of, of assessing your, um, you know, uh, of observing the the mind wandering. It could. I mean, you. That was just a starting point. You could do exactly what you just described. Yeah. So you could wake up and just sort of, as you wake up to the wandering, and, and to be clear, I don't think you're going to be aware of the wandering while it's occurring most of the time. Very hard. Yeah, I, I would say almost by definition, but maybe when I'm closer to enlightenment, I won't say that. Right. No, and I think, and I'm not there either, but I, I think that that does get held up as an ideal. You know, many teachers say there's no problems with thoughts. Just be aware of thoughts while you're having your thoughts. And and I think we talked about this maybe a year or two back, but that, in my experience, I tried, I really got into watching. Is that possible? Is it possible to be aware of thoughts while they're occurring in real time? And every time I was sufficiently aware of thoughts occurring, that had an operational influence of interrupting the thoughts and they've just vanished. Right. And certain teachers would say, that's great. But if you're interested in getting to understand how thoughts function, how thoughts condition your view, I think it's, it behooves us to let it go on for a while and just as long as it does really. And then when you realize that you, that you woke, you've woken up to it, then you can look back through it a little bit. 
But what I'm really part of what I'm you know if you picked up on the smiling bit or the celebrating bit, this is um, there's a style of meditation by an American monk Bhante Vimalarasi or Vimalarasi, who has a a system that he attributes to having extracted from the suttas, the early teachings, and it's he calls it a five hour pattern. So you when you wake up, you recognize what that you've wandered, and you recognize what you're aware of. Mm-hmm. You re-smile, so you re-establish a soft smile. You relax your body. Am I getting getting these R's and incorrect? Mm-hmm. And then you you re, then you let it be. It's a, it's a form of releasing it. Just mm-hmm. let it be. And then and only then, after you've gone through that step, you return. And his argument is, if you don't do those steps, you inevitably build in extra unnecessary tension. There's a struggle or fight with the wandering. And, it, and his point is you have to go around the cycle over and over and over so again. So wait, you recognize, you re-smile, you, um, you relax, you, and then the, you... Ph- return- physically. Yeah, you yeah. You relax physically. Sounds easy. Because there's often, in, in thinking, you, there's a subtle tension that can creep in the, into the physical experience. Sure, and then, you, and then you do what? You return to... You return to whatever your primary object was. So if that was the breath, he, and he actually recommends metta practice, not as like a, not not as loving kindness, not as a ongoing repetition of a phrase, but just as using one phrase and then relaxing within the, the the, sort of the, the feeling of the chest or the heart until your mind wanders again and you repeat it. So there's a, there's a, there's a way, I mean, you know, uh, I know John Kabat-Zinn would say something like this. It's going around that cycle that is the equivalent of doing a repetition with a weight in your arm. Mm-hmm. Like for like coming back to the Ajahn Chah thing, if you stay just on your breath, that is not going to give you the training conditions to really develop both mm-hmm. the mindfulness of what it's like when your mind is not with the breath to see how your mind moves. That's one way of describing mindfulness. But you're seeing how your mind moves from one thing to another and the relationships within that process. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well, the four thing, the four R thing is interesting too. I, I'm, I, I'm afraid I, I can't oblige him on the meta, uh, the meta front, but, uh, the, the, um, that's interesting too. So you give me plenty to think about, and I already have in mind questions for next time we talk about this, um, things I'm, you know, I'd like to actually, Bring up now, but I think we should move on to this courage and mindfulness thing, uh, yes. because it's of genuine interest to me. And 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 let me, you know, I think you read you read the piece I'm going to reference in my in in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter. the 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 point was, uh, it was an argument that, uh, you know, we should be willing to. Uh, do things on social media, if that's where we are, that are unpopular in our tribe. Uh, we don't have and to risk, go over... What's that? And risk the blowback. And risk the blowback. If you think if you think your tribe is kind of, well, thinking tribally, for any reason, not acknowledging something that, that's just not consistent, you know, there's something that happened that really doesn't fit into the talking points of the tribe... And so nobody's kind of acknowledging it, the reality of it, or this, this could have been like, you know, um, or back, back in olden days when uh, Trump was president, um, you know, uh, everybody's seizing on something as evidence of his collusion with Russia when really 
it's not, and you're going overboard, and it's just not the smoking gun, and people are going crazy, and it allows people in the other tribe to rightly ridicule you, and so on. It could be any number of things. It could be, uh, you know, you think uh, you think the wokeness is is going too far and distorting your tribe's vision, or if you're in another tribe, it could be something else. It doesn't matter. Uh, but the point was, um, it. You know, on social media, it can take real courage to take a stand like that uh, because uh, it's very painful for a bunch of people to jump in and uh, and condemn you, as will pretty reliably happen in situations like this. I mean, you can you can you can phrase things in a way that reduce the chances of that, maybe, but still, we can all probably think of of things. Uh, we're tempted to say uh, that that aren't going to be popular within our tribe, and um, and we just don't. And it happens to be all the time, you know. And, and but I was I was singing the praises of the courage, uh, and I was thinking, you know, there has to be a way to use mindfulness to cultivate courage because what keeps you from courage is fear. And, and, you know, fear of the blowback, uh, and, 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 and maybe fear of various feelings you'll have after the blowback. Uh, well, and then, I mean, I was hoping you'd explain, say more about this, but on, from the evolutionary psychological front, this must be rooted in, in, in social ostracization, right? Like that's, that has to be a deeply rooted kind of atavistic fear. Sure. Uh, and and a desire to be thought highly of, you know, within your peer group, uh, 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 you know. But but yeah, the the ultimate opposite of that being actual ostracization. You don't want to be close to that end of the spectrum. You want to be close close to the to the accepted and admired uh, end of the spectrum. And so and yeah, then you, a, and then you and then you combine livelihood to that ostracization in the form of canceling. Uh, yeah, it can, it can have real career stakes. Um, and, and again, like that's like the extreme case can be cancellation, losing your job, but even the increments along the way, uh, are, are things you're naturally averse to, you know, just, just, uh, a few people thinking you're cancel worthy or a few people thinking less of you than they thought before. Uh, uh, you know, um, because in this environment, you can say reasonable things and be accused of almost anything, you know. Uh, yeah, there's you a pileup. And then, and then and, and I don't know. I mean, I looked at the article you wrote. I mean, I've read it a few times now. And I, I was on your Substack page and saw some of the – was reading through some of the comments. And I was just impressed by the number of people that were chiming in and saying, well – I'm, I'm off social media now. I pulled out, I pulled the plug mm-hmm. on that completely. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've done more or less a similar thing. Um, because it's just with, with the pile up, it's impossible to, to, to process that. There's no conversation. There's no discussion. It's just, it's just this shooting range. Right. And I respect that. And, uh, like right now I don't have Twitter on my smartphone. That's a kind of a comp. I just don't want to get too obsessed with it. So I just do it on the computer. Um, and I and I respect uh, the decision to just unplug. You know that said, um, it would be a shame 
if kind of all right-minded people unplugged. I mean, you know, you would like to think there's somebody in there trying to set your tribe aright. Un- unless, and- un- well, that, this, this will feed into the apocalypse aversion a little bit. I don't know if we'll get to it today, but unless there's enough people that actually en masse leave and, and actually start having better conversations and re- restore their own sanity. Sure. And then maybe uh, venture back in right. for a while. Into, and then into they a different a, form. And then they need a break or, yeah, or they're, but, but I mean, the problem is, and this is especially true during the pandemic, it's like, if you aren't going to influence people on social media, where are you going to do it right now? As the, you know, if we emerge from this pandemic, this it, it seems to be happening, at least in America, um, you know, there will be more actual in-person conversations and so on. Uh, but I still think, you know, given the the importance of social media, I would I think it would be good if there were, you know, people who were really trying to be really uh, mindful and do the right thing on social media and not gratuitously antagonize people and so on and are willing to to wade in. But 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 in any event, I mean, the thought was just that, like, in principle, if fear is the main thing standing in the way, that in principle is something that mindfulness can help you with, right? I mean, any any given uh, kind of aversive feeling is yep. something that in principle mindfulness can help you with. And yet, this seems like not that easy an application of mindfulness. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not as easy even as anxiety, which is no, not easy, but. I would rather overcome my fear of public speaking. Right. Than I would to right. try to, I would be harder to overcome my fear of being like lambasted on social media for, you know, for speaking out against my tribe, as you're describing now, before we get to the courage piece, though, I think part of the, what stands in the way, what obstructs it, is that there, I think there's an implicit problem in mindfulness culture around the issue of non-judging. Because if you come out with any kind of statement that is a judgment against something in your tribe, then you're being a judgmental person and, and just evincing how badly or how what a poor meditator or mindfulness person you are, if that's part of your brand, like mine. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doubly hamstrung. There's an expectation that I won't have judgments because yeah. I'm a mindfulness practitioner. At the same time, you you know, we referred to skillful. Was it action? Skillful, skillful means whatever. Speech, skillful speech and skillful well, intervention. It entails implicit judgments. It doesn't entail you saying to people, "You're right, you're wrong," but it could entail something like just saying, "You know, it seems to me." That if we all put it this way, then, you know, Trump supporters are going to take it that way. We don't, you know, that's probably not constructive. And, you you know, that would be a, now implicit in that is a judgment, right? The judgment is like doing it the way we were doing it is suboptimal, not good, given our goals, right? Mm -hmm. But, but, but I think you'd agree that you know, putting it in a not there, you know, there is, you know, you, you take my point. You, you, you can, without defi- without violating any fundamental tenets of Buddhism, you can wade in and say the equivalent of, I think this is not a good idea. You know, like, right. That's no, no, what skillful action I, I, is. Right. And I, and I think you do that better than most because you go out of the way to, I have cognitive empathy for the opposing view. You're able to be a kind of diplomat between the two sides. 
that's not so easy. And I think even if you're a mindfulness practitioner, you know, it's, it, you could still be quite under the sway of your own internal bias system. Sure, we all are. It's very hard. It's very, you know, enlightenment would be to be completely free of the biases, I think, among other things. I don't know anybody who's enlightened. It's definitely not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> and let's don't get into that argument no, either, okay? I know you, you have a more liberal threshold for enlightenment, I think. But uh, I see it as a, I see awakening as a process, and yeah. and 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 it, well, it needs too. to be and endlessly refined, and, yeah. and 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 to frame it as a as a thing that's out as of reach. I think you're right. It doesn't I don't see that as being helpful. But okay, so then um, the, the the mindfulness to courage connection. Um, I mean, I, one way of describing that is that, and I want to see if you agree with it, is that mindfulness, in the course of doing it, you learn to tolerate things you don't normally uh, sit with. And this gets back to your practice. Mm-hmm. Like, can you sit with not being focused? Can you tolerate? Can you bring tolerance to that? Which I see is tolerance is the seed of compassion. The more you can tolerate something that's uncomfortable, you can start to see into the mechanism of it more. Mm-hmm. So it's this, the seedling. Um, and I mean, I can think of a few cases where I have confronted fears. I mean, even talking to you is me confronting a fear. Being coming onto a platform like this with you is, is, is like puts, takes me way outside my own comfort zone. But I, I think it's a result of actually just being okay with a not sounding so clear or, feeling so good or feeling like it wasn't the greatest. But you're the guru. I'm the student. You should, you know, how nervous should I be? Don't. (laughs) I'm I'm suddenly terrified. No, the the only reason, don't be terrified because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a guru. And you know that I'm a, the phrase I like is Kalyana Mitra, the spiritual friend where we, you and I, and, and I have with others, a spiritual friendship in the sense that we, have engaged with practice together. We share the, some interest in the practice and we enjoy talking about it. Um, but the, the, the ability to tolerate things outside of your thermostatic comfort zone uh, does breed a kind of courage if you're, if you're willing to, to, to go. Uh, and, yeah. And so, so uh, Okay, but let, wait, let's make sure we have the application right here. Uh, I, I shouldn't have distracted us by calling you a guru. Um, the, uh, are you saying that tolerance, are you talking about tolerance of, what kinds of things are you talking about tolerance of? There's tolerance of the things you see online that you want to, in effect, criticize. There's that kind of tolerance, by which we mean not that you're not going to t- point out what might be suboptimal about them, not tolerance in that sense, but in the sense that you just, you don't freak out when you see them. It's like, okay, that's happening. No, I'm talking about the tolerance of the consequence of speaking out. Okay. That's hard. I'm, I'm talking about the, the tolerance of the, I mean, that's, but that's the, what the fear is confronting. Sure. Right. That, that's harder. And you know, one thing about it is like, it seems to me like, Let's suppose that you're going to do say this thing on Twitter and you sit down, you meditate, maybe you imagine the the kind of blowback you, to the extent that you can, people saying mean things about you on Twitter and you're and you and you 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 reach a kind of peace with your imagined version of it. It's it's not triggering you as much. It's not feeling so aversive. You're just kind of observing it. And then you go, so you go on Twitter and you say the thing 
And then the people call you a neo-fascist. And then you're like, fuck, that hurt. And then, and then doesn't that kind of, kind of, uh, uh, Defeat the whole purpose? I mean, uh, in other words, you know what I mean? I mean, then you've gotten, to the extent that it hurts, it is going to be that much harder, right, the next time. I mean, you tell me. I mean, I'm off the platform mostly. (laughs) So I'm I'm maybe Maybe you're not. uh, No, this is where I'm, I'm, the, the tables, you're the guru to me. How do I become more courageous? Because it, I mean, the thought I had the other day, I'm going to, I'm going to t- go on a tangent for a second if you'll indulge me, is that um, my partner, my life partner and I um, had one of our perennial problems. It's a miscommunication problem. And these happen like once a month or so, and they can get really escalated really quickly. And I don't need to go into specifics. Good idea. <laughs> after really spending some time talking to her about it in a, in a calmer space, what I realized was that it, under normal circumstances, we're in harmony. We're coming back mm-hmm. to this musical level. We're in harmony. And then something happens and one of us goes out of key. And, in that, and invariably... And you may have different per- ideas about who that person was even. Exactly. But- You're right on. But it doesn't matter who it is out of key because the resultant discord is so bad that whatever statement gets made in the out of key disharmony, whatever statement is there, it gets interpreted as a hand grenade getting launched and it, ex- it, it, it really will escalate into this existential threat, which I think is more or less what we see on the national scale right now. Two warring tribes hurling grenades, both sides feeling that it's an existential threat. Now in couples therapy, what they talk about is this practice of, of mirror listening. One person speaks and, and says, speaks for maybe five minutes and after they speak, the other person, the other partner, needs to mirror back and sort of steel man what the person said, what she said or he said. And you don't progress until you, the, the other per, the speak, the first speaker feels like they've been heard and, and, and have been mm-hmm. more or less understood. Now, that's the, this is what I'm getting at. It's like, this is the kind of process that I think you might want to be thinking about on a, more, on a broader scale. Because it's not just about an individual, like it's, it's the conversation that needs to, to shift and, and, and by people, by both parties figuring an off-ramp from the conflict to get into being in tune again. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but are, are you talking about like in, in the converse, in the, in the interaction between America's two big tribes, red and blue, or, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I don't, that's, I don't I don't see an easy way for me to orchestrate that. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I see here part of the problem. I mean, it's hard to give, it's hard to influence the other tribe. If you're going to have any impact, it's probably going to be preaching to your own tribe. And even that's hard because things are so polarized. So if you start saying anything that sounds like, oh, you're trying to excuse what they do, you're trying to understand them, what they're doing is intolerable. We shouldn't try to understand them. We shouldn't try to, you know, if, if you try to say things in a way that won't offend them, you're surrendering to them and blah, blah, blah. It's hard, it's hard enough to preach to your own tribe in times like this, but it's super hard 
to preach to the other tribe, right? Um, Except the intuition you expressed in that courage piece, which is that you suspect there are more people like you, and I think you're right. Oh yeah. Well, I think there there are more people like me in my in my tribe. I mean, this was a specific issue. Uh, you know, in general, uh, like there are lots of things um, politically that you know in my tribe there are things that. If you say them, I, I tend to get a lot of receptivity. Like, don't you think maybe in this particular case, the identity politics went too far? And a lot of people say yes, but they're not saying it online. Or like, you know, don't you think police aren't always evil? And they go, yeah, they're not always bad. And you're like, but would you say that online? <laughs> like, Even something, even as modest a claim like that. So that's what I meant is like, there are... Yeah, there, there are some uh, some ideas that I think are pretty widespread within my tribe that people are very reluctant to express. Absolutely, I yeah. Right. So I don't know how we set that up to improve conversation. Well, it's like a critical mass thing, though. I mean, that particular thing when there's a lot of people who aren't who are afraid to say something. It, it it's like. Eventually, there's a snowflake that causes the avalanche. Eventually, if enough people step forward, you can reach a tipping point where people feel comfortable. And by the way, this is what happened with Trump, I think, is like there were a lot of people on his in his what is now his tribe who 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 wanted to say these things. And we might not approve of all of them or any of them, but they believe them and they wanted to say these things about political correctness they wanted you to quit lecturing them about how you could and couldn't describe some minority group. There were all, there were all these things, and, and 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 they really weren't they weren't seeing them on TV, right? So they could tell like this is not acceptable. You don't see this on TV. Suddenly, this guy shows up. He's on TV. He's saying them, and 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 that was for them uh, the snowflake that caused the avalanche. I think, and suddenly that's why people rallied around such an imperfect figure. A lot of them recognize his imperfections. It's But it's like, he's all we got. That's kind of a digression, but that's what you, within your own tribe, the, the reason, I guess part of the case for courage is that like, if a few more people can show it, right, you might reach that tipping point where something that needs to be said within your tribe is now widely said. Right. And... <sighs> The thought that occurred to me is that you've used this phrase in the past that what's good for the individual is good for the, the collective. So so mindfulness on one level can be thought of, a mindfulness practice can be thought of as self-help. But if more people do it, with, even with that intention of just sort of right. getting a little more relaxed, a little more peaceful, whatever, then that, that could have, uh, you know, a, a positive outcome distributed through the collective. Um I'm, I'm trying to imagine, like, my recent experience with this, with this conflagration at home made me realize that, A, I did not get good training growing up on how to be a good communicator, and I don't think I'm the only one. And it, it, it's, a, it's actually a, a specific skill line that, like ear training, like mindfulness, uh, and they're all reinforced, they could all reinforce each other, but needs its own kind of practice and development. Mm-hmm. Like in an ongoing way, if you if you're really serious about becoming a more cognitively empathic 
interlocutor. Yeah, where cognitive empathy means kind of just understanding the point of view of the other person. Right. Like that, I mean, that, that, it's almost like that, that needs to be a, um, a practice, which I put in, in your eightfold Dharma path that you're developing in the Apocalypse Aversion project. I was glad to hear that I'm developing this. Until, until we spoke shortly before, uh, I pre- I clicked record today, I didn't realize I was. Well, think about it. What's the first noble truth in Buddhism? Uh, well, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Suffer. Yeah, but no, it's translated as misleadingly, I think, as, as life is suffering. But uh, I, I'm not. I'm the one who's supposed to not care about translation. So, so never mind. You know. Right. Let me just. Okay. So, so and the then there is, there is a source of suffering. Ultimately, is the craving, and there's a way to get rid of the craving. Yeah. So it's, it follows an Ayurvedic, ancient Indian medical prescription right. or formulation. There's symptoms. There's a symptom of dukkha. There's dukkha is what's often translated su- as suffering. Perhaps suffering, right? Suffering or just chronic frustration, as I think Alan Watts put it. Um, then there's the cause, the, di- the diagnosis. What's at the root of it? Tana or grasping. And there's various forms of grasping. But then the third truth is, or the third ennobling truth, I like that translation, is the realization of, the, like, the liberation from the cause. Whether And whether that's a, a once and for all thing, I don't think that's the case. It's more of a momentary thing where you learn a new dimension, of, a new way of being independent of the conditioning that had you grasping. Mm-hmm. And that leads to the eightfold. Well, the, the eightfold path is a prescription. Right. It's, it's, it's sort of the medicine that you have to uh, develop right. to facilitate a deepening understanding of those other three truths. So in your Apocalypse Aversion project, do you, you want to map what you're doing into that schemata? I did it last night. It kept me up till 2 o'clock. Um, y- you mean what, you, what, start, you start with... with uh... It's like a societal level diagnosis along those lines. You mean? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think. I mean, the, the, I wrote, yeah, zero well, sum tri- zero sum tribalism will more or less guarantee an inability to handle the apocalypse. It's an, it's an existential level issue. Yeah, I mean, I you did. Agree? So you had read my my most recent one where I had a seven That's, the seven yeah, the seven tenant breakdown. Yep, that and that was that brought into clarity. You're, you're, that's that's your analysis of the symptom and part mm-hmm. of the and part of the cause the the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So the diagnosis is what? Well, the psychology of tribalism, I'm saying, is at the root of it. Well, um, that's the symptom, I think. The root of it is cognitive well, biases. You could, and you, you could cognitive say this. biases. Yeah, I mean, you can you can I mean the 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 the, the way. I've Put it is that the, the psychology of tribalism consists of uh, cognitive biases. You, you can say, for the most part, um, but uh, I mean, it seems to me the symptom is not so much the psychology of tribalism as the strife, the conflict. The, sure. the that's kind of analogous. That that's what gives, signals that there's a problem, and and it and it leads. It is almost. Uh, synonymous with suffering it's like it's not it's not fun for most people it's it's it causes pain it's bad it's a symptom i'd say the source of it is uh 
I'd say what's what's analogous to the Tanha part uh, is uh, of of the the noble truths is um, is could could either be put as this, the psychology of tribalism or in terms of its constituent parts, which includes these these cognitive biases. That's the way I would think of it. And then the prescription is is the third part is. No, that's not the part. prescription. That's the, solu- the, 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 pr- the prognosis. Right. That's the, the prognosis. I was going to say the prescription is harder, but I, I hinted at, at that. Um, it, it, it includes mindfulness. Right. Um, mindfulness would be one piece, I think. But, the, um, but, the, but the, go back to the prognosis. What, how would you define the prognosis? Well, I mean, if you if you take prognosis to mean if you follow the prescription, if you're able to follow the prescription, yeah. What what, what, what is the good outcome? Right. The good outcome is a true global community uh, at a nuts and bolt level, characterized by some degree of international governance, uh, but but you know not massive strife along national, ethnic, religious, or ideological lines. Right. So are you comfortable with the phrase non-zero consciousness? Um, or what do you think of that? That's, that's the phrase. It's, it's like, yeah, we, because that's what the prescription needs to do. If you've, you've been talking about the need for a, an evolution or development and, and transformation in human psychology, it, go, it would mean it would imply, I think, moving from the kinds of things that get one into a zero sum frame of consciousness to a non to ability yeah. to operate at non-zero sum. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I'd hesitate, I, I mean, yeah, there, there is an insufficient awareness of non-zero sum dynamics, which makes it hard to respond wisely to them. I think all that's really required for the salvation of the world is for everyone to recognize non-zero sum dynamics when they exist and respond wisely to them. Uh, even from the point of view of self-interest. I mean, that's not all you need if you want, like, for justice to prevail and everything. But, 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 but if job one is to keep the planet intact and, and, and get us all on the same page so we can talk about all of these things, including, uh, justice, then, then it really would be enough for people to recognize non-zero sum dynamics, uh, react to them wisely, even from the point of view of self-interest or national self-interest, um, you know, because, well, I could explain why I think that that is strictly speaking enough if you just want to keep the planet intact. But if I hesitate over a phrase like non-zero consciousness, it's it's because zero-sum dynamics do exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like in all kinds of realms, in athletic realms, in... They're real, and and you might as well recognize them when they exist. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I sometimes I get people like reacting to my writing by saying, "Oh, they don't realize that this is a non-zero sum situation." Sometimes I think, "No, actually, that's not a non-zero sum. <laughs> you guys have a natural conflict of interest that happens in life. You mm-hmm. want different things, and um, uh, that are that are incompatible. Uh, but but yeah, no, a non-zero uh." Consciousness does capture a lot of, uh, you know, with with that kind of qualification. Uh, so I'm going to try to thread this back to the very beginning. 
we we're, we're, you and I we haven't mentioned this this conversation, but you and I are are one of the things that kicked off these the series of conversations is was the tragic and untimely death of our mutual friend Michael Brooks. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> years before Michael Brooks became the celebrated uh, progressive pundit that he was, uh, he and I were interested in launching a mindfulness consultancy that would help individuals within organizations overcome cognitive biases through mindfulness training. So it was a combination of cognitive bias training and mindfulness training synthesized with that explicit intention. Mm-hmm. And we never got it off the ground, but we did offer some sort of we, uh, a few series of uh, workshops um, to a small number of people that I had through my own uh, network of students and one of the things we were exploring was approaching meditation practice as a way of developing non-zero sum relationship to your own mind. Hmm. And that's and this is what I, I think is like if, if we can frame the like and this is how I'm trying to frame mindfulness practice rather than having this divided mind between good experience and bad experience these two these two binary oppositions to actually get the parts, anything that happens to be held and received and tolerated enough to see the, the, the larger process under play. That you're not, it's not, a, it doesn't need to be a war, which is often what happens in, in people's in, uh, psychology. They get divided between competing virtues and, and, and drive, different so you're drives. you're saying a non-zero-sum relationship to your own mind. I mean, I, I, I'm tempted to ask whether you mean a non-zero-sum relationship well, between two different parts of your mind or between you and a given part of your mind or something, right? Because, you know, I mean, you become, I think, more aware through meditation and you can that there are, in a sense, these competing actors, competing impulses in your mind. And, and that's consistent with a certain scientific, you know, paradigm about the structure of the mind. But um, but that's not what you mean. There's a reason you're saying non-zero-sum relationship with your own mind. Just, you know, a a collaborative approach that doesn't try to, uh, you know, a zero-sum relationship would be like you have to get rid of things. This is like to cut things out. You can't have one thing without the other. Mm -hmm. And and from the perspective of non-duality, we're we're waking up to a a capacity to hold the totality of our being from a a different perspective Mm -hmm. or from a different dimension of ourselves. Namely, you know, yeah. awareness is awareness wakes up to being able to hold the totality of good and evil within the heart. So, I mean, it, if you had a non-zero-sum relationship with your mind, you would, you would, at a minimum, spend less time saying, "Bob, you fucked up again." <laughs> at minimum. And, 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 but, but, but the question arises: Is that because you would? Is that just because you would fuck up less, or is it because? Uh, Saying that, even when it's arguably true, is 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 being zero sum in your view or something. I think it's yeah, resisting it, trying to squash it is zero sum. Whatever energy comes up, whatever manifestation of the hindrance, whatever manifestation of tana, if you can collaborate it and actually in, in, enlist it in the project of developing more wisdom and compassion. It, that to me, that seems like a move, like it's a win-win because you're collaborating with the energy rather than resisting and fighting it. Okay. Well, so that would be part of, that's part of what you mean by non-zero consciousness? 
Yeah, I may not be using your, the term correctly. I realize that. It, 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 well, um, it is, I, just, I don't think it's that. I think it's it's more it's more like uh, my conceptualizing my mind in a way that allows me to even apply that kind of terminology to it. So that's what I'll have to think about. Um, I just think of like when you, when the times when you like there's a shared there's a, there's an outcome that's dependent on two parties collaborating and working together. Whether it's a hunt, you know, two 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 hunters have to work in a, a non-zero sum dynamic to to take down the, the beast. So if if the if the aim is to become more tolerant, compassionate, yeah. and wise about your experience, you will see in the course of your meditation that you have parts of you that are in competing in competition around that process. Right. They, they, they will they will struggle with it, and so it's when you learning to to essentially get all parts of yourself to function like a like a harmonized team. Yeah, but see, that's exactly my point. That the way you put it there, if you get the parts of yourself to function harmoniously, then you could say they are in non-zero sum relationship with each other. I mean, I mean, first you have to characterize them as, as these discrete things that are capable of having outcomes that are good or bad from their point of view. But anyway, that's kind of what I had in mind is the way you, you put it is like bringing all of the parts of you into harm, harmony in pursuit of, of a goal. Uh, is in arguably in a certain sense to uh well it 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 isn't it isn't strictly speaking to bring them into the non-zero sum relationship it's to bring them to the kind of win-win outcome of what was intrinsically a non-zero sum relationship um that see that's you know, that's a way I could see that, – that's why I was drawn to that way of thinking about it, right? Almost mm-hmm. dividing your mind into parts that you want to be working harmoniously. Um, and that's – I mean, I think that's the phenomenological experience when you look into yourself. You start to see that you have different – like, and sure. we speak about it colloquially. Like I, a part of me wanted to do that. A part of me wanted – and there's a whole psychothi- psychodynamic system called internal family systems that sort of yeah. has a conscious way of – Engaging and 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 communicating and, and conversing with these parts to to in a sense get them to work together as a team or you know yeah. you the, you the core self or the or the conductor with the whole orchestra getting the mm-hmm. the orchestra into yeah and there's just the modular view of the mind uh, certain versions of which are are kind of that these these actors and um, so uh, well anyway we so. Uh, I have a lot to think about. Uh, we've been we're we're, we're approaching the uh, ninety minute mark. Um, I want to. I want One thing I want you to think about. Here's your homework. Oblige. Prescription. The fourth. Oh yeah. Aspect of the, uh, oh yeah. We haven't gotten to. I mean, we should save this because it sounds like a big subject. But we haven't gotten to my whole eightfold thing, which you say I have or should have. I think it's. I think you're in the process of developing it. Well, last the last newsletter had seven. <laughs> I just need yeah, one more. No, I know no, those no. those don't map onto an eightfold path. I realize those were. No, they uh, do. They listen. But yeah. They do. What you're mostly describing are wise view. How to comprehend the dynamics of the world in terms of non-zero, like to see the non-zero some dynamics that are at play. That requires. 
that's like the philosophical cognitive aspect of the Eightfold Path as it's being updated right now. Mm. And then okay. the intention, and then the intentions that flow from that, and then there's that you can get into action, speech, livelihood, energy, mindfulness, and samadhi, which we'll we'll talk about that another time. Okay, this is uh, this. I think this has a lot of potential. Um, I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad you reacted to that. You know the 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 little the little seven tenet thing I laid out by 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 thinking it could be further developed. You know, somewhat along the same lines. In other words, I mean, I had more than one reaction like the, like that. That the, like, oh, okay, this is what you've been saying is a little clearer to me now. Uh, yeah, and, and, I, and I and I also think, and I, I I I know. I mean, you mentioned you wrote about Frank, the story of Frankenstein. We don't have to get into that now, but I I hear you looking for stories that are kind of on the mythic level that, that convey the, the, the deep structure of the, of mm-hmm. the, the worldview you're trying to, uh, to share. Yeah. And this allows us to actually uh, close with a reference to your work. So in your uh, everyday sublime podcast, you did this podcast. I, I wasn't aware of this story from the Buddhist, uh, Text. I assume is this, this is in the Mahayana. Uh, no, this is this is this is Theravada. Really, in the Theravada yeah. canon. Okay, so it's this. Uh, this guy's name is translated as what? Guy who cuts off fingers or something? What was it? It was, it was like this guy. <laughs> it, 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 anyway, it, what I'm it has in, what it has in common with uh, with the Frankenstein story is, is that it's a guy who kind of becomes this horrible person for a while. I mean, Frankenstein becomes this horrible, beastly monster. And yet, started out, you know, as this guy you'd like. And then... is the driven snow. Yeah, and and then was... And then was steered through kind of hostile social forces, you know, uh, into a dark place. And, And in this case... Unlike in Frankenstein, there's redemption at the end because this guy has the good fortune to run into the Buddha himself. That was a lucky break. Um, and he gets straightened out. But anyway, people should, uh, if they want to hear the rest, it's, what's the name of that, that episode on your podcast? Do you remember? The podcast is The Everyday Sublime. Everyday Sublime, the podcast. The name of that episode was Angulimala's Karma. Okay. So you'll see how, like... If your problem is you're going around killing people and cutting off one of their fingers as a, and then and then wearing it as a garland around your like stringing on a garland around your neck, yeah. then then that's the story. This for is you. the podcast for you because there is a way out. You don't but, have to do this for the rest of your life. Um, well, you know, and this gets back to our first retreat. I remember, uh, you know, you were driving off after your first retreat, and you asked me, "Is this this feeling I have now going to last?" And my answer was, nope, I'm still an asshole, Bob. Is that what you said? <laughs> I said, I'm still, yeah. I think you're being too hard on yourself. I think you should apply more loving kindness to yourself. I'm, that's, that's idiot compassion. Oh, okay, then don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't. Whatever you do. No, 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 no. Real compassion is, 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 is not, is not going to tolerate the asshole. Okay. Well, no, or no, I should, you know, I will tolerate it, but I will, I will have 
have commitment to to transform it to to good energy. Which yeah, is what I you try kind to of, do. You kind of look at it with like bemused detachment and forgiveness, and yet aspire to change it. Right. That's. I mean. That's. See, I, I, that's what I. I, I think. Um, you should look at yourself the way a loving God would look at you, right? Like, shakes its head, kind of doesn't approve, knows when you did something you shouldn't. There and you yet, go, because by virtue of omniscience, by virtue of understanding everything about how you came to be what you are, kind of understands. And right. so is I mean, it too harsh? That's what I would recommend. Okay, that's I'll take that. I'm gonna I'm gonna imagine a loving, benevolent God shining down upon me. Next next transgression. Yeah, you know, I I want to talk I want to talk about this. We we should talk about this in the future because uh, that's a particular little stick of mine that that actually, even if you don't believe in God, uh, you can. It can be you can. There's a sense in which you can say God loves you and forgives you, and and it can help. That's that's the cryptic thing I leave you with. There's, there's so much to. I mean, I, yeah. I, <laughs> you're, 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 well, this is what I think a lot of your work does: is it zooms out to this ten thousand foot view to see the various causes and conditions that cause people to be the way they are. You know, through natural selection and evolutionary pressures and technological pressures, like you, it, it, it really does uh, change the sense what I have around my personal authorship on these things. I mean, when I act like that, it's, it's causes and conditions that have been baked into me that are just getting expressed. Yeah. Causes and conditions being a, a Buddhist kind of phrase, you know, that's the great thing about Buddhism. I mean, it, 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 it understands the pervasiveness of causality <laughs> and, and, uh, that's the irony. People think of it as this fuzzy Eastern thing. In a certain sense, it's very infused by the scientific spirit. It takes yeah. causality seriously as a pervasive thing, right? And it and it wants you to understand that your own your own behavior and and psychological stuff is a result of causal forces, and it wants you to become aware of those, and that's the path to liberation. And you have to be aware of them because the access to them is what comes up from the unconscious when your mind wanders. We have come full circle. I told you we would. Okay, and so I'm going to try uh, following your your sage guru advice <laughs> when I when I meditate tomorrow. Oh, oh, oh! This this occurred to me while we were talking. Here's what I, on the courage thing. This just occurred to me is like. Yeah, sit down and meditate before you tweet the thing that's going to get blowback. But then when you get the blowback, maybe you should sit down then on the cushion and observe the feeling you're having right then. That's what I think I should try. You know, the the, the very uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I mean, and and sure, and the, you can you can definitely do that. You sound not optimistic about it working. I think it's the I think it could be the ticket. The trouble, the hard, it's so, so often the hard part is getting yourself to sit down. I th you know? Well, I think, I think you're, I guess the, 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 the skepticism I have is I think you're trying to apply it in the moment. And this is what I'm trying to say. I think the, the habits of practice yeah. build up certain, like, 
build up sure. some character traits that over time absolutely true right yeah so that if you're if you're if you got a really robust practice then anything you feel out there in the world you'll be better at stepping back and observing before it grabs a hold of you and compels you to do something that's not wise that's all true um at the same time this this feeling you know you you'd agree probably it's good to practice with all you know kinds of feelings right and this is a specific kind of pain that's not that easy to imagine and it's not going to it's not going to it's probably not going to afflict you while you're doing your morning sitting so you know you might you might want to take that opportunity and it's probably the best way to defuse it is like i mean what i recommend is like okay so you tweet the thing Three assholes call you neo-fascist. I don't, we don't really consider them assholes. We're very uh, tolerant. But, okay, so you see it and then you mute them. You mute them. So you're not going to hear any more. You got it. And then you sit down and, uh, you sit and you observe the feeling that you're having, which is a uncomfortable feeling. So that, are you going to do that between now and next time we meet? Uh, if I, well, uh, assuming I work up the courage to tweet something unpopular, which probably won't happen. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see, but I will, I will try to do the four hours. That I guarantee you, if I can remember them. Um, I so, wish you luck. I wish so, you luck with that. So thank you. So we will return to this whole thing in all its dimensions and I will, uh, I'll try to summon non-zero consciousness, and uh, and non. I mean, I was also banning in the, the phrase non-zero communication. You could go all out. You know, somebody wants. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, you I mean, you could. I yeah. can see you. I can see you moderating debates. Similar, That's, you know, with people from other sides. Yeah. And 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 shaping it around. A goodwill effort to heal this problem, like you're a, like a marital therapist for the country. <laughs> That's... <laughs> okay, there it is. I'm gonna go change my LinkedIn profile. Thank you for that phrase. Um, you know, you know what I mean, though. Yeah, no, that's I mean, it. That's, that's my it. calling. That's my calling. Well, okay, I, I think I think your calling is is you're trying to do it for the world. You're right. Country wasn't big enough. I'm the marital therapist of the oh, world. Darn, hold on. It's, it's a big burden. It, you know, but it, somebody's got to do this job, and why not? Why not me? Well, okay, because I can't even meditate. That's why, Bob. Because you can't even meditate. But well, now I, I got the four hours, so I'm going to get better. I know and, I, should, and, I shouldn't think of it that way. I know, but I will. And on your last, the last thing is the the, the retreat. With uh, Michael and and Orion, yeah, uh, I was on a retreat with Michael once where someone complained that their meditation was no good. They weren't making any progress. They couldn't, as you as you kind of complained about not being able to stay on the breath and this. And then Michael's answer question answer to the uh, share was, "Well, tell me about your life. How how is how are your relationships?" And, and the guy said, "Oh, you know, my children are doing well. Very very fulfilled in my my career, my marriage, and life's pretty good. I just can't focus on my breath." He's like, well, Michael, why are you- Michael. Michael's yeah. answer was, sounds like you have a good practice. <laughs> I, I would have said, why are you even trying to focus on your breath? Enjoy your life, man. Um, okay. So uh, anyway, we, we should uh, we should go. We'll be back at some point. And uh, thank you for the uh, 
Thank you for the sage guidance, Josh. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Uh, I look forward to hearing the, the report. Uh, it'll. I promise to deliver it. We'll see you.